right, welcome everybody back to the second of four sessions for our newcomers orientation. Now, the books that we gave you in the first session are reusable for sessions two, three, and four. Uh, but uh, we already had one confession that says we left the house empty-handed. So does everybody have somebody that can uh, cheat off of? All right, everybody's at least got one book uh, there because I'm out of them over here now. I gave out a few more, okay? But we're on page 10, which is lesson two. And last week, we the title was An Intentional Church. And in that lesson, if you weren't here for it, it's in your notebook. It's also recorded. So all of these sessions are recorded and are on our website. So you can go and listen to that. But we had three things that we said in there that were intentional in our mindset. That is, when we started our church 14 years ago, We came into it with the idea that we're not just going to structure it the way we've always seen church structured, but we're also not looking to change it just for the sake of change. We want to think fresh and uh, think clearly about the objectives that God has given us in the New Testament and how the way we uh, go about ministry can advance that and uh, do the Lord's work as efficiently as possible. So we came into it with that mindset. And then secondly, we saw last week that we have structured our church in an intentional way. Our structure is intentional. Uh, We have this second hour, educational hour, and worship first on purpose. Not just to be different, but on purpose. And last week, I pointed out that one of the major reasons we have this second hour is we call it discovering God. And it's a time uh, that is really evangelistic. It's a time where normally, if I'm not doing this, I'm in the auditorium, and I'm covering topics that are of interest to those who may not know Christ. And we invite people to come to those, and I'm able to give the gospel through that. Well, that's intentional. We structured it that way intentionally. And the reason we do it second hour is because an unchurched person might want to sleep in. Really. So we do it second hour, and we come and worship early. We'll get out of bed, but if you're not a church person, we'll let you roll out of the rack later and come to and come to our Discovering God Hour. I mean, that's really that's really it. Uh, so we're trying to make it as convenient as possible for those who are not uh, accustomed to coming to church. So our mindset's intentional, our structure, we're structured that way intentionally. And then we saw last, last, last week that uh, our schedule is intentional as well. Even the events that we have on our calendar are all designed to try to help us accomplish uh, an objective. So uh, as you come to CBC, that's one of the things that if you stick around that you will learn, that we try to do what we do with intentionality. It doesn't mean we always do it right. Some things we have to change, but we don't just do it because we've always done it or we don't just do it because it sounds like a good idea. Think about it. How many good things could a church do? I mean, they're just the, the list is endless. And a lot of churches uh, have an endless list of things they do, but there's no particular coherence to them as they're all moving toward uh, accomplishing the mission that Christ gave to us. So we try to be intentional about that. And now, uh, today, we're going to look at the fact that we try to be a healthy church. That's what we say at the top of page 10, a healthy church. And we saw uh, last week that our vision and mission statement are these. Our vision statement is that we seek to be a healthy community of faith. That's all it is. We just want to be a healthy community of faith. Our vision is what we hope to be. Our mission is what we want to do because of who we are. And the mission is that CDC exists to help people learn about God, love him and others, and live for his purpose. So we've got these three objectives, learn, love, and live. And all the stuff we do fits around those objectives. 
Now, that vision that we have to be a healthy community of faith, well, that requires an answer to the question, what does a healthy church, what does a healthy community of faith look like? And that's what today is voted to, devoted to, a healthy church. So top of page 10. And as I said last week, small venue, so as, uh, if, you, if you have any questions as we go, just get my attention. I'll be happy to try to answer them as best I can. This is the second of four lessons designed to provide an overview of our ministry and the rationale behind it. Last week we saw that we seek to be intentional. This week we'll see that we strive to be a healthy church. Next week, a growing church. And actually we should mention the week after that is a, uh, a committed church, a committed church. But first here, you see on page 10, uh, we believe that health produces growth. Our objective ought to be church health, not church growth. I mentioned last week that we are not seeking to be a particular size. We are not seeking uh, growth first. We're seeking to be healthy, and as a result of being healthy, then all things being equal, we expect that our church will grow. That's what has happened for us. And so that priority scheme of health and then growth as a byproduct of that is important because it does affect the way you go about things. If you're a church that's committed to, we want to grow in numbers, and numbers are everything, then that will affect the way you go about the stuff that you do. You will find yourself, if not compromising, certainly tempted to compromise in order to accommodate what people want. There's a whole, there's a whole cottage industry out there called church marketing. And what, a lousy, what a lousy thing to market the church. Now, advertising the church is one thing. You know, advertising is simply telling people who you are. Marketing is becoming what the market wants you to be. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm very much against church marketing, as you might, as you might imagine. Uh, so we have a, a product, if you want to use that, that terminology, and we believe the, the product is not only good, it's the best thing in the universe. It is the gospel. It is truth. It's a relationship with God. So we don't need to water that down. We don't need to, to change that in any way. We do need to represent it accurately and advertise to people that we have it and invite them to come. But we're not marketing our church so that it can grow as large as possible. But I tell you, if you market the church, it works. It works in the sense that lots of people come. But you are, you are inviting people to come based upon their own desires about a church, not what God says a church ought to be. We want to look at what God says a church ought to be, a healthy church. Yes. Questions yeah, about? sure. Um, do you see a difference between those that market style versus content? Yeah, sure. And, and that's... Do you and, think both are incorrect? Well, I, I one, uh, do you all hear the question then? You know, what about style versus content in this uh, marketing idea? And, uh, and if you are seeking to grow, uh, and that's your chief objective, then style will be more important than content. Because style is what attracts the crowd. Not, not the content. They haven't even heard the content yet. So, if, if they like, if they like rock music, do rock music. That's style. Okay? If, the, if that's what the culture wants, then do that. That's what marketing says. All right, now you got me started. But doesn't they? So they get them in so they can hear the content. And it's and 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 so yeah, stay with me. Uh, so the the Pied Piper of church marketing is really Willow Creek Community Church mm-hmm. in South Barrington, Illinois, just out of Chicago. And Willow Creek has spawned hundreds of churches, uh, actually thousands of churches around the country. And they actually have a thing called the Willow Creek Association. They're all devoted to the same seeker 
philosophy. I kicked on the seeker thing last week. Now I'll kick on the marketing thing. When Willow Creek started in 1979, here's how they started. They did a marketing survey. And they went around the area of South Barrington and they said to unchurched people, why don't you come to church and what would it take for you to come to church? And so they said, you know, they got responses like cooler music, shorter sermons. (laughs) That was a big one. And Willow Creek literally designed itself around what people said they wanted. Well, as I say, it works because just hordes of people, hordes of people come. So you get them now back to uh, what you just said about uh, that gets them in the door so that they can they can hear the message. Uh, so that's a a pragmatic approach to getting people into the in the door. Pragmatic, that is, the end having them hear the message dictates that the means must be okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the Bible explicitly for, forbids that. Forbids a pragmatic approach to ministry. Now, where? In 1 Corinthians 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'll tell you what it says in a second. But before I tell you about 1 Corinthians 2, there's 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 to 23, Paul, who wrote it, says, To those without the law, I became as one without the law. To those with the law, I became as one under the law, and, and so on. And then he says famously in verse 23, I become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Well, Paul's a pragmatist, sounds like. Except, and I learned this in seminary. You have to go to seminary to learn what I'm going to tell you. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 2 comes before 1 Corinthians 9. (laughs) And before he ever says that, the context of that is already set in chapters 1 and 2 where he talks about the gospel and a proper approach to ministry. And when you come to chapter 2, here's what he says. He says, when I came to you, verse 1, I did not come to you with words of eloquence and man's wisdom. You know, some of you know that passage? You remember that? Mm-hmm. Now, why does he say that? Why does he say what I didn't come to you with? Because a marketing approach, guess what a marketing approach would have done? Exactly that. Because that's what the Cor- Corinthians were all about. Rhetoric and man's wisdom. As a matter of fact, for entertainment, I'm not making this up. For entertainment, they would go and hear Rhetoric, they would hear someone give a speech to persuade you to a particular course of action. So when someone gave up to give oratory, that was the way in that culture they were expected to do it. Okay, you, by your prowess, convince me of this. And for them, that was entertainment. And Paul says, I specifically did not come to you with that. So Paul is saying, this is my paraphrase, I did a marketing survey in Corinth. And here were the results. Here's what you told me you wanted. And I did the opposite. (laughs) I preached Christ. I sought to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. He says, so that the results will rest not on man's wisdom, but upon God's power. So Paul explicitly forbids a marketing, uh, pragmatic, ends justifies the means approach. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And if you look at the way he pursued his ministry, that's precisely what he did. He gave people the the message. Now, and he gave it unadulterated, not watered down. Here it is, and we'll see what the Spirit of God does with that in the lives of people. Now, in 1 Corinthians 9, and this is instructive for us, all of us, 
He says, I didn't do anything to put unnecessary barriers in front of the gospel. So I'm not going to do anything that's going to attract you to the gospel. The, what, what's the only thing that can attract somebody to the gospel? Anybody know? Christ. The Spirit of God. Because who by nature is attracted to the gospel? You know how many people are attracted? Zero. Okay, good. All right, so we're, we're, you guys got what I said about seeking last week. If you have a seeker church, nobody shows up, okay? Because there's no one who seeks God, not even one. So how many people are attracted to Jesus naturally? None. So what we got to do is use the tools that God has given us, namely the Word of God, prayer, and the Spirit of God to move upon hearts. But we also don't want to do anything that unnecessarily puts a barrier in front of it. And that can happen. And that's what 1 Corinthians 9 is about. To those who were of the law, I'm not going to put some unnecessary barrier in front of it. And I gave you guys last week some unnecessary barriers that we've sought to remove here. Now, you've got to be careful when you put your list together of what's necessary and what's an unnecessary barrier. Is dress a necessary barrier? We determined it's not. And so we don't have a dress code spoken or unspoken here. And that's why you see people dressed in all sorts of different ways because we think that would be an unnecessary barrier. Uh, for dis- the Discovering God Hour that we do, uh, we don't have music that hour. The reason we don't have music is because that can be an unnecessary barrier for people. So notice, we're not doing. We're not asking you what kind of music do you like. We're just not doing any. And we're inviting you to come and hear a message. We're inviting you to come and hear some guy talk about truth. And we're doing our level best not to get in the way of that, not to be an unnecessary barrier in our demeanor and the way we welcome you, any of that. So we, we go out of our way to do that, to be guest-sensitive, but not guest-driven. You heard me say that last week. So... Um, getting people in so that they can hear the message. We want to invite people in. We want to advertise, but we're not going to market. Advertising is telling people who you are. Marketing is becoming what they want you to be. And what we have to be is a healthy community of faith. And we have to look to God to tell us what the profile of a healthy community of faith looks like. Be that. Don't get in the way. And then it's amazing. You know, people accept the invitation. They hear the word. The Spirit moves, they get saved, we baptize them, they grow in Christ, and lo and behold, that sounds like the Great Commission <laughs> happening, okay? So, good good question. Back to page 10. Health produces growth. Our objective ought to be health, not church growth. And then as a byproduct, growth. A vital or healthy church is marked by spiritual vitality, functional effectiveness, and statistical growth in its life and ministry. Acts 6 Verses 1 through 7 provides a paradigm, a model for that. So let me quickly explain that. So in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, uh, as Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, describes the progress of the mission that Jesus gave to his first followers and the formation of the very first church ever in the city of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. And then Luke follows the progress of that church from Jerusalem as Jesus said, to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. So the 28 chapters of the book of Acts are all centered around that. Jesus said, here's how the mission's going to go. It's going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to spread out to the regions beyond and even to the ends of the earth. And Luke spends 28 chapters showing that progress, starting in Jerusalem. Then when you get to chapter 9, you see that chapter 8, you see the uh, mission spread into Judea and Samaria. And then ultimately it ends uh, in the capital city of Rome, the capital of the, of the empire. 
So that's the outline. Starts in Jerusalem, and Luke gives these progress reports of the church, starting there and then and then spreading out. And when he comes to chapter 6 in verse 1, it starts this way. It says, in those days, the number of disciples was increasing. So the church is in Jerusalem. It's the only church there is, only one at that point. And the number of disciples is uh, becoming larger. And then it says, and a, a dispute arose. Now, what was the dispute? It describes the dispute. The Grecian widows complained that they were being... Uh, passed over, that the Hebraic widows were being favored in the distribution of benevolence. So what is that? The church at Jerusalem had uh, had developed a benevolence fund uh, for food for widows in the church. And these Grecian widows are saying that the Hebraic widows are getting first dibs. Now, why? Who are the Hebraic widows and who are the Grecian widows? Uh, the Hebraic widows are the widows who are from around Jerusalem. And they're familiar with the Old Testament, and they're familiar with Hebrew, thus the Hebraic. The Grecian widows are those who have come from outside of Jerusalem, and they've come to the church. Now, why would they be there? Because back in Acts chapter 2, when that church started, remember it says that there were at the Feast of Pentecost. That's why they were all in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, for this feast called Pentecost. And there were there Jews from every nation under heaven, it says. Now, some of them, after Pentecost and the church starts, some of them didn't go back home after the Feast of Pentecost. They stayed around. Why did they stay around? Because Jesus was coming back. And where is Jesus coming back to? He's, he's coming. He, he left from Jerusalem. He's coming back to Jerusalem. So they're hanging around. We're not going back. <laughs> and as a result, you've got all of these people who had come to Pentecost, and there's a whole bunch, a, a ton of them, and now we've got this benevolence thing. We've got to feed these people, all of that. But some of them are the Grecian widows that came from the regions outside of. So they were already outsiders in that sense. And they sensed that they were being treated as such, and they complained about it. Now that's what's going on. What did the apostles do? passage tells us in Acts chapter 6 that the apostles convened and they convened the church and said it would not be good for us to neglect our priority ministry of prayer and the word to do this. But here's what we propose. Choose seven men, men who are filled with the spirit and are filled with wisdom. Choose seven men who can do this work. And it says that the proposal pleased the church. The church chose seven guys. They name the seven guys. That passage names the seven guys. Those names are all Greek names. Now that's important. Because remember who was doing the complaining? <coughs> the Grecian widows. And to show that we're going out of our way to be fair in this, we're going to choose guys from your party to distribute this. So they did that. And then as a result of all of that, verse 7, the end of that story, verse 7 says this. So, the number of disciples increased. Well, let me just stop there. That, the implication of that is, had they not handled this well, the number of disciples increasing could have slowed or, or stopped. But as a result of handling this, the number of disciples increased. And it says a great many priests came to the faith. Why priests? <coughs> because in the temple, well, here's my speculation, 
uh, in the temple, priests, one of their responsibilities was the uh, benevolence to God's people. And they saw the way this was handled. And they saw the deferential way in which this was handled and had an, had an effect on them, apparently. So they handled it well. Now, notice what they did. They had t- two things going on at that church. They had spiritual vitality. They knew what their spiritual priorities were, prayer and the word. And they also had functional effectiveness. That is, they had it. They developed a means to actually carry out the ministry. Choose these seven guys. We will put them in charge of this, and they will administrate it. And that's why we say, then, top of page 10, a healthy or vital church has those things, spiritual vitality, functional effectiveness, and the result of that, then, is numerical statistical growth. So they've got both of those going on if you're going to be a healthy church. You've got, you've got spiritual priorities, spiritual vitality, and functional that is, the way you function is effective. Now, just stop for a minute. Haven't, do you guys know of churches that have one but not the other? You know you can be spiritually effect, or you can be spiritually vital. You can have a church that's a great bunch of people. They have their spiritual priorities right, but the trains never run on time. They're not functionally effective. The right hand never knows what the left hand's doing. We can't get anything done. I've been in churches like that. Great people. Spiritual priorities, nothing works right. I know of churches where everything works right. And it's like clockwork. But it's just a well-oiled machine. And they don't have their spiritual priorities. But if you've got both of those, now you've got something. Spiritual vitality and functional effectiveness. And that normally results then in statistical growth. All right, so what are the vital signs of a healthy church? Page 10. The first one of those is a healthy church is gospel-driven. Gospel-driven. Now, if you were to say to any church, hey, uh, what are you driven by? You know, what drives you? Uh, Any evangelical church is going to say the gospel. Uh, So what does that mean practically to be gospel-driven? All evangelical churches believe the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of of Christ, that one must embrace the Savior, one must embrace the truth of the gospel, and and follow him. So everybody believes the gospel, but what does it mean to be gospel-driven? Well, it means that that truth will permeate what you do and how you do it. So let me give practical uh, examples of that. A gospel-driven church will not have, as I said earlier, any of these unnecessary barriers for anyone to come because everyone needs the gospel, right? So we want everybody to. We want to invite, come one, come all. So we'll do our best to eliminate any unnecessary barriers to anyone uh, giving a hearing to the gospel. Eliminate unnecessary barriers. Um, And we will take, a gospel-driven church will take all comers. That is, you don't have to meet a particular profile to come into a gospel-driven church. You heard me beating on that if you were here the first hour. Uh, that you know a, a healthy church really has is a mosaic of all sorts of people from all different backgrounds. That's what you find in the New Testament church. And if a church is going to be healthy, it's a church that welcomes everybody, no matter where they're coming from. And a church can truly say, if it's gospel-driven, come as you are, but don't leave as you were. Okay? Come as you are, but the gospel changes us. The gospel has impact on us. So come as you are, but don't leave as as you were. So if you're truly gospel-driven, then one way to measure that is, 
look at the profile of your church and do you have people from all the stratas of society there? And if not, you need to ask yourself why. Why does everybody need to look the same? What is it we're doing to communicate to people that you can't come here unless you learn the secret handshake? Okay? Unless you know how we roll before you come in. So as a result, many of our churches become churches that are only transfer people. You know what I mean by that? They just transfer Christians from one place to another rather than people who are not Christians being able to come in, hear the truth, have no unnecessary barriers before them. And then you've got this, uh, you've got this uh, different levels of maturity in your church as a result of it. So that's one measure. Here's another measure. A gospel-driven church will be one where it is safe to be a sinner. Safe to be a sinner. Now, I say this every time I teach this, safe to be a sinner, and I always have to add, it's a place where it's safe for you to admit that you're a sinner, for me to admit that I'm a sinner. Okay, That's a gospel-driven church. It doesn't mean it's okay to sin. I always have to add that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You know, we all, if, if, we, if we belong to Christ, we want to eradicate sin. We want to kill sin. We want to mortify sin. But we all have it and we all struggle with it. So if we're gospel-driven, we will create an environment in which it's safe for, pe- for people to admit that they are sinners in general and struggle with particular sins specifically. And many of our churches don't do that. They don't create that kind of environment. The environment we create is this. We're all kind of middle-class people. They just need a little tweaking around the edges. And none of us have any real big problems. You know, nothing to speak of. Everything's cool with us. We show up at church and everything's cool with us. We drink the coffee and have the bagels. And and nobody that's having a struggle ever tells anybody they're having a struggle because nobody else is having a struggle. So if you don't create an environment where it's expected that people will struggle with sin, then people won't speak up about struggling with sin. And they won't deal with it. They'll hide it. You've got many, many, many people sitting in churches week after week and they're hiding the struggles they have because they think they're the only ones. But a gospel-driven church says the gospel is for everybody because everybody has the same problem to which the gospel is the remedy. Namely, we are all sinners. It's amazing to me that that's one of the foundational things that we believe, that we are all sinners. And yet when somebody admits they have sin. We look like, wow, I've heard about people like you, but I never actually met one, you know. Well, the truth is everybody in here has got struggles, and the person standing here has struggles, and everybody out there does. So the sooner we admit that and are honest about it, then we can create an environment where people can come and get help with those struggles rather than simply hide them, okay? So a healthy church is a gospel-driven church. Second, it's vision-motivated. I have listed there what I already said about our vision to be a healthy community of faith and our mission to help people learn about God, love Him and others and live for His purpose. Now, with regard to our vision, um, that's what we want to be, a healthy community of faith. And then that, in turn, uh, if, we're, if we are that, then we carry out the mission of learning, loving, and living. Practically, here's the way that translates for us here. Uh, we have had a vision statement there's the general vision statement, but we have had a vision statement for uh, 14, all 14 years of our existence. And that vision statement I put together when we first started the church. And I looked 15 years down the road. So we're 14 years into it. we got one year left on our 15-year plan. 
one. Uh, in fact, we only have a year left. It ends November of this year. So here's what we've been doing every year. What I did was I put together a fictitious journal entry, my journal, like I'm keeping a journal. And on a Sunday in 2016, here's my afternoon journal entry. And it's a page and a half of all the stuff that happened at our church that Sunday morning. And it talks about the ministries that we have and the people that were baptized and all the things that were going on. So it casts that vision down the road 15 years. And then every year of the 15 years, we take three or four or five items out of that 15-year plan, and we say this year we're going to try to accomplish those three or four or five things. Those are our objectives. So every year we've been doing that, we've been checking these things off. Now, here we are in 2016. Yikes, we arrived. We're into our 15th year. And by God's grace, we've been able to accomplish most of the things that we put on there including being in a building of our own, which we accomplished two years ago in here. So lots of things that we needed to accomplish. We haven't been able to do all of them, but we've been able to do most of them. We are working now on our next 10-year plan. Now, the first one was 15. We're working now on the 10-year. And I tell people that the older I get, the shorter the plans become. (laughs) When we we get to our six-month plan, you know I've had a diagnosis. But we're working on the 10-year plan uh, now. So, but a church has, has got to in, uh, a church has got to be motivated by a vision for what God's church can and should be, and then develop ways to get from where you are to where you need to go. That's what we try to do with that. Authentic worship, third characteristic of a healthy church. You've got these principles, and then on page 11 there are practices that flow out of those principles. Let me try to bounce through these quickly because this worship idea is very important, I think. Uh, Here we're talking about congregational worship when we gather on the Lord's Day as we did in the hour prior to to this one. But worship must be God-centered. Now, just like gospel-driven, who's going to say no? We don't want our worship to be God-centered. So how do you know if your worship is God-centered or if that's your objective? Well, I mean, one way is, what is the criteria by which those who design worship and those who participate in worship judge whether it is successful or not? I mean, what we just had congregational worship. If that was a successful time, successful, what, what made it successful? in your mind, if it was. Well, here's what your answer ought to be. Because we did the stuff that God says to do in a way that's consistent with the character of that God. We did what God says to do in a way that's consistent with the character of God. Because remember, friends, worship is not first about me and you, it's about God. And therefore needs to be centered upon God. So instead of saying, what do you like in worship? Instead, think of this. you got churches all over the country who have two worship services every Sunday. One traditional and one what? Contemporary. So we've developed worship based on your tastes. And I've got my taste and you've got your taste. And we'll, we'll actually split up over our musical tastes. Yikes. And what that normally amounts to, by the way, is the old people go to the traditional service 
And the younger people go to the contemporary service. So here's an effect what you've done. You've divided your church up along generational lines. Now read your New Testament. And you've got Titus chapter 2. Older women teach the younger women. Older men teach the younger men. How's that ever going to happen? Those guys never even cross paths. They know each other. So it's it's God-centered, not just in on paper, but the criteria has to be what is God like, and therefore what is God like? Not what do I like, what do you like, what is God like? Now, you say, really, does God have any tastes about worship? Since he's the one being worshipped, you would think. Hebrews 12, verse 28. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Here's what it says. Since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us worship God acceptably. Uh, Let me stop there. What does that imply? It's possible to worship God how? Unacceptably, right? Many people don't know that. They think God will just take whatever whatever he gets. No, it's possible to worship God unacceptably. Well, what does this acceptable worship look like? Since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us worship God acceptably. And then it says this, with reverence and awe. So, rather than entertainment, rather than a concert, we come before God and we reverently worship Him. That's why one of the banners on our hallway says that these are three characteristics of our, our church. Real people, relevant teaching, and reverent worship. Those three things that we seek to be reverent in the way we go about it. And then verse 29 says this. Here's why you should engage in acceptable worship, which is reverence, reverence and awe. For, verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. You know what that is? That's a warning. And, you know, in your Old Testament, you had a couple guys named Nadab and Abihu. Unacceptable worship, unauthorized fire, and God took action. You know, God needs, well, God knows what he needs to do. But, but if God were to judge, and when God judges the evangelical church for its self-centered worship, you don't want to be there. All right, God-centered. Word-centered. I mean, if I'm going to be God-centered, the only way I know what God likes and what God wants is from the word, the worship itself, the songs, their content, the preaching, all of that needs to be centered on the word of God. Worship must be regulated. And here's what we mean by that. That is, in the Word of God, God has told us the things that He wants in worship. So we are not authorized to add elements to the worship service that God has not given. You guys are familiar with the Protestant Reformation in history? 500 years ago. Uh, started October 31, 1517. So we are on the 500-year anniversary next year of the Protestant Reformation. October 31 of next year. Uh, But one of the principles that came out of that was something called the regulative principle of worship. And that was pursued by the reformers because the Roman Catholic Church had added elements to worship that are not in the Bible. So they said, we are not authorized by God to have anything in worship that is not authorized by Him. So, Think about the stuff we did in the worship service. Pray. Paul tells Timothy to pray publicly. Public worship. Pray for kings and all those in authority. So, 1 Timothy 2. Offerings. 
1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul says, when I come on the first day of the week, before I come on the first day of the week, bring your offerings and give them so there need to be no collections when I'm, when I'm there. So it's on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, Sunday. That's the first day of the week. You take, you collect money. So even the offering is authorized by God. Okay, Singing, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Sing and make melody in your hearts as you teach and admonish one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Remember that? That's part of worship. So everything we do, public reading of scripture, prayer, offerings, preaching, music, it's all because God said to. And I don't get to add any other stuff to that. And, and neither do you. So that's what we mean by regulated. Worship is sacred. And sacred means set apart. So what we mean by that is it's not like everything else you do. You know, this is a time in which we are gathered in a special way in the presence of God. And we need to treat it that way. It's set apart from Saturday night you might have went you might have gone to the Red Wings game. This is different than the Red Wings game. It was designed to be different. It's designed to be sacred. It should be treated that way. Worship is corporate. By that, we mean congregational. Congregational. So when I say corporate, we mean all of us together. We're talking about the gathering of God's people. Now, let me give you a couple principles that come out of that, or a principle that comes out of that. If you've been in any of our worship services, you notice that we don't have a lot of individual expressions in the worship service. You know what I mean? Individual expressions. Like, I grew up Pentecostal. <laughs> there was individual everything <laughs> when I grew up Pentecostal. But one of the things was uh, somebody would just belt out an amen. Okay. Now, if you look up amen and the way amen was done in the Old Testament, first part of your Bible, you'll find this phrase many times, and all of God's people, and all the people said. See, it wasn't just Joe belting out an amen. Wasn't individuals expressing? Now, you know, there's no crime there. If somebody does, we don't. The ushers aren't instructed to carry them out. Okay, <laughs> but that's why we don't do that. So it's not sin, but it's also not what that was about. Here's another thing: the raising of hands. If you notice, there's not a lot of that happening, and our people on the platform don't don't do that. Now, why? There's raising of hands in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. But again, go and read. I've looked up every passage where they did that. And they are all, it'll say this, and all the people raised their hands. It wasn't just Joe having his moment with Jesus. And he raised his hand. Or Mary having her moment with Jesus. Now again, is there anything wrong with an individual raising their hands? The answer is no. But it's not what the practice of raising of hands was corporately, congregationally in, in the Bible. Now, why do we care about that? Here's why. Particularly in our culture, we live in a very individualistic culture where everybody does their own thing. When we come together, it is us, plural, together, the congregation, expressing our confession, our heart to God together. And so what we do, we do together. That's why I'm in this old-fashioned habit of giving the pastoral prayer, and at the end I say, and all of God's people say, Amen. Because that's why we do that. We all agree with this. We believe this. This is what we believe. This is what we sing. Okay? So that's why we, that's what I mean by that. And then lastly, worship must be holistic. You could put a W in front of that because we mean whole. 
And so one of the practices that comes out of that is you seek to engage the whole person, mind, will, and emotion. All right, quickly, page 11. Effective preaching. A healthy church is engaged in effective preaching. Now, this point used to say powerful preaching, and then I remembered who does most of the preaching here, so I changed it to effective. And really, there's a big difference, though. Effective preaching, as we define there, and you can read on your own, is is trying to speak in a way that what is presented, the truth that is presented, has an effect, a good effect, on the God's people. So it's not just the lecture. It's not just the transfer of information. It is giving truth so that people are affected by it, so that they put it into practice. And in fact, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that's the purpose. I have it listed for you there. That's the purpose for which we have the Bible. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that none of those four things are the purpose of the Bible. Here's the purpose of the Bible. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the idea is that it's to have effect on you, on me, when presented. Powerful preaching. What, you know, in our circles, and in evangelical circles, what we mean is you've got a charismatic personality that just really moves people. Mm-hmm. And I would just tell you a little secret. If you hang around at, at our church, uh, I downplay myself a bit when I preach. Uh, you know, I'll, 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 I'll joke every now and then, but I could be a real jokester. But that's not the time to do that. And it's not the time to attract attention to me. I want the attention to be on the Bible and the word and the message. So I purposely tone myself down for that reason. Now, just like in keeping with that principle I talked about earlier, I don't want to get in the way either. So I want to present it in an orderly fashion and hopefully in an interesting fashion because if I don't, then I'm just getting in the way by messing it up. But I also don't want it in any way, shape, or form to be about me. So I don't want people to come from here and say, wow, that guy is powerful. Look, it's not the guy who's powerful. It's the word that's powerful. And the word that's presented accurately and truthfully and in a way that people can understand and that they will listen to, that has effect in people's lives. All right, servant leadership. A healthy church is comprised of people who lead it who are not in it for position. And how do you get a church like that? Well, you make it hard to become a leader. (laughs) I mean, we make it hard to become a leader in our church. Um, In order to become a deacon and part of the leadership team on our church, we have to ensure that you meet the qualifications for 1 Timothy chapter 3. And those qualifications are heady stuff. They're almost identical for deacons as they are for pastors and elders. And then they have qualifications for the wives of deacons uh, as well. So how do we make sure that that happens? We have a questionnaire that's based uh, upon 1 Timothy 3 that goes around to people who know that individual both in the church and outside of the church. And that questionnaire asks them for a rating of this person on each of these character qualities. And, uh, so it, and, and then we also have a, something called Leadership Institute that anybody who would be considered to be a deacon in our church has to has to take. Uh, it's training for for leadership. So we make it hard to be a leader. And the guys that we've had, and the guys that we have, 
and the guys, Lord willing, that we'll have in the future are guys who don't care about the title, they don't care about the position, they want to use leadership in order to serve the Lord and his people. All right, dynamic discipleship, bottom of page 11. What that means as you read through that is that we have an intentional way of seeing uh, people discipled. So uh, rather than the approach that's normally taken in our churches for discipleship, which is this, osmosis. The approach to discipleship most of us experienced is the osmosis approach. You know what I mean by that? If you hang around long enough, you'll get the idea. (laughs) So if you hang around people who have been Christians for a long time, and you do that for 20 years, then you'll just sort of get the idea. That's the way most of us were discipled. Just hang around. But, you know, discipleship is too important to just leave to haphazard, a haphazard approach. I believe that all things being equal, a person can move from coming to Christ and being grounded in uh, their faith in three to five years. Now, why do I say that? Um, The longest period of time that the Apostle Paul spent at any one church recorded in the book of Acts is three years in the city of Ephesus. At the end of those three years, as he's saying goodbye to the elders there, do you remember what he famously said? I have declared to you the whole counsel of God. Three years. They had Paul. Okay? You got me. So they had Paul. He also says, I spent day and night. He worked with them. So he spent a lot of time with them. So they had those advantages. Do you know they had disadvantages? We have advantages they didn't have. None of them had a copy of the Bible. None of them had published material, curricula, that could help them uh, in their Christian walk. So that's why I say all things being equal, three, roughly three to five years, you can, if you have an intentional approach, take somebody from new faith in Christ to being grounded in their faith. Now, coincidentally, we have a four-year plan for that. And we have a set of classes that we encourage people to take, everybody in our church to take, that take four years for you to complete. Next week, yeah, next week, I will give you a chart that shows where those four classes are, but they take place in our Institute on Wednesday nights. So our Wednesday night meeting is an institute that has those classes and and other classes, but they are intentional. You take this one, then that one, then that one to help you get grounded in your your faith. All right, dynamic discipleship, and last but not least, an intercessory prayer, because all that God does is about his glory, and he wants and deserves the credit for it, then anything that the church does moving forward needs to be done on its knees so that when God answers prayer, he's the one that receives the praise for it. Okay, So we want to be a healthy church. Those are the seven vital signs of a healthy church. That's what we mean by that. If you guys have any questions, I'll do my best to answer them. It is two minutes after noon. So if you have kids that you have to pick up, please leave and pick them up. Here's why I'm always interested in you leaving and picking your kids up. Because the people who work back there will shoot me (laughs) for going long. Okay. Any questions? Everybody good? All right. See you next week, Lord willing.